Hi, everyone. I'm Brene Brown, and this is Unlocking Us. Today, we're talking to Bishop Michael Curry. He is the presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church. And on this episode, we're going to talk about love. Messy, hard, complicated love. And I don't know about you, but I need to be focusing on love and hope right now. Um, This is such a fear-based, scarcity-based culture that we're in right now. So a little love will go a long way. We're also going to talk about the church, how to build a beloved community, and the scrappy, gritty work of love that is actually my definition of faith. There's great lyrics from Roberta Flack's song, a song that uh, Bishop Curry loves um, that's on his playlist. And these lyrics, I think, sum up what we're going to talk about today. She sings, this is my quest to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far. There's also another song in Bishop Curry's playlist that I did not expect. If you already know Bishop Curry, you'll just love this. And if you've never met him or heard him, you're in for a big treat. I can't wait. All right, so my guest today is Bishop Michael Curry. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we refer to him as the Most Reverend Michael B. Curry. Again, he's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. He is the first African-American to lead the denomination, which is my denomination, actually. And he was previously bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. Bishop Curry is recognized as one of the most popular preachers in the English language. And you will know that very shortly because this episode's like church. As the descendant of slaves and the son of a civil rights activist, Bishop Michael Curry's life illustrates massive changes in our times. He's a noted advocate for human rights and author of several books, including his latest that just came out called Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. Through the prism of his faith, ancestry, and personal journey, Love is the Way shows us how This country came this far, and more importantly, how it can go and needs to go a lot further. He and his wife, Sharon Curry, have two daughters, Rachel and Elizabeth. They live in North Carolina. Let's get on to church. We're late. Grab the first pew you can find. That would be my dad. That's what he would say to us every Sunday. Actually, what he would say to us every Sunday is, get any pew you can find, but make sure you sit on the end because we're going to leave right after communion. We were those people. Okay. Bishop Curry. So before you thank me for having you on the podcast, I want you to hold any potential gratitude to the end because I, I'm, I'm going to need you to help me with some stuff during this hour together. Mm, okay. We'll do it together. Okay. Okay. We'll do it together. So I finished reading your new book, Love is the Way. Oh, Okay. Thank you. And well, I shouldn't say thank you. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. No, you may have to. Um, I am. I'm struggling, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And I want love to be the way, but I, I'm wondering if we've been worn down, like we are weary. Yeah. And I, I'm having a hard time getting to love right now. Is it? Do you? Am I alone? No. Good Lord, no, no. I mean, we're worn down. I mean, I mean, we're not only worn down. I mean, there's there's been a lot going on, certainly in American culture and society, that's worn us down. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the you know COVID nineteen and the isolation, and 
and separation. I mean, human beings weren't made to be separated from each other. I mean, we, we weren't made for that. We were made right. to be together. And right. even when we're headaches to each other, we're still better off together than we are apart. And we've been separated. And then whatever anxiety gets added on top of that. I mean, parents have kids in home. Some folk are living, you know, multiple family, intergeneration. I mean, think about it. I mean, this is not normal. <laughs> We've not been right. living a normal existence for however many months it's been. And and then we've been cut off from the things that actually feed us, whether it's, you know, family and extended family, if they're not actually living with us. Folk are cut off from religious and faith communities, at least in terms of, you know, being physically present. Um, you know, and the online thing is, you know, people are doing that, but that's not the same as being in the same room and hearing the singing. And I mean, you know, and while people are slowly going back to churches and mosques and synagogues and all that kind of stuff in small groups, singing is something you can't. I mean, think about it. All the stuff that actually feeds and nurtures us has been taken away. And we've had to find it's like we had to find neural roots to even be in touch with God. And, you know, God is spirit and God is. Been, but somehow God gets mediated through community, too. <laughs> And we've been cut off from that. So I hear you. I mean, that's real. Add that on top of that, not only the the pandemic of COVID-19, but the pandemic, as some have said, of 1619, of chattel slavery and uh, white supremacy and, I mean, all that stuff. And it's just constant shootings and killings, uh, police, the people who, and, and again, it's not all cops. I know that. But police-motivated violence that, makes human life cheap. And the fact that you have to say Blacks lives matter because they're not treated as though they do matter. And that's why it has to be said. And this has been going on forever. And Black folk and Brown folk and Indigenous folk are weary because they've been crying in the wilderness like John the Baptist for generations since I was a kid and before that. And, and now the rest of the country has seen this in isolation from each other. When you add, a, that's a heck of a lot of stuff. No wonder we're all tired and kind of on edge and 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 kind of, I mean, you know, I mean, you have to kind of remind each other, remember, we're all kind of on edge. I mean, I've been in meetings where I've actually had to say, hey, guys, re re remember, we're like, we really are on edge, all of us, me too. Um, so let's be gentle with each other <laughs> as much as we can. That's, Brene, that's exhausting. We're cut off, not completely, from the very sources that give us life right now. And we're having to find new roots to them and new ways. And so what you're feeling is real. There's also just the exhaustion with our politics, yeah. with our divisions, which are deep. Um, um, let no one fool you. I mean, you, I mean, you know, I mean, you're, these divisions are real and they do stem from past generations and decisions that were made have been made about how we were going to be e pluribus unum or not. And so it's hard to exist, much less really live right now. But it's not impossible. But it's not impossible. No. You know, it's it's. I wrote down something you just said, that God is mediated through community. And you write about that a lot in your book, about the importance of community. And, you know, it's funny, 
I, I, t- I talk about this publicly a lot. It's probably, you know, it's kind of scary when you're an Episcopalian and you're talking to the, you know, the the leader of the leader of the leader of our church. But, you know, I always say I go to, ch- I go to church for three reasons. Hmm. To sing with strangers. Yeah. To pass the peace with people I normally would not like or would want to punch in the face. Yeah. And to go to the rail and break bread with people that I need to understand better. That Those are the three reasons. I'm sure there should be better theological reasons I go to church, but I never thought about that's how, that's, that's where I find God in love. Yeah, you got it. That's awesome. But it's, it's, it's impossible right now. And Okay, so I want to go through the new book. So again, the title is Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. So I want to read a passage to you from you. Okay. And I want to dig into it with you. The way of love will show us the right thing to do every single time. It is moral and spiritual grounding and a place of rest amidst the chaos that is often part of life. It's how we stay decent in indecent times. Loving is not always easy. But like with muscles, we get stronger both with repetition and as the burden gets heavier and it works. Yeah. Oh. We get stronger as the burden gets heavier. Yeah. Are you sure? Well, I- I'm not sure theoretically, but I have seen it experientially. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my grandmother is one of my my heroes or heroine. Um, and if she was a character, but she wasn't like always a saint, believe me. But um, but I watched her endure a lot of unbearable stuff. I didn't see her bury young children in child in childbirth earlier on. I wasn't born yet, but I saw her bury her daughter. Mm. And and then in her uh mid 70s turn around and as old folk used to say rear two more children <laughs> and right. and she did and that's an unbearable i mean i've seen her i saw her bear unbearable burdens as the song says and and when i think about how did she do that some of its personality i'm sure there's some of that some of it's having lived through enough hard times that you stop and realize there's a gospel song that uh, Aretha used to sing, uh, How I Got Over. And and I don't know, Grandma, I actually reflected on how she got over the last time she had a hard burden. But she clearly learned something <laughs> from having gotten over or gotten through somehow some hard times previously. And that learning was a building block that, like I said, this is me projecting back, but I I don't think I'm off base that in some way she was learning, how did I get over? I was talking to a a rabbi friend of mine who was telling me, he said, one of the things you have to do when you're going through a real hard time is stop and say, okay, when was the last time I went through a hard time? How did I get through it? And, and, That's right. and by doing that, it's like it stops you and you realize, wait a minute, I did get through it. It wasn't pretty. And, you know, it may not have been the way I wanted to get through it. It may not have been things may not have been solved the way I wanted to. But I, I got through. I survived. Um, it's kind of like, was it, who's that song? I have survived. I will survive. I will survive. You know, yes. At some point you realize, well, I did survive. 
I did make it through. And you build on that. That's what I mean by you actually do get stronger. That doesn't mean you don't get weak and fall back. Doesn't mean, I mean, none of us are super people. We are not uber minched. We are not super women, supermen and wonder women. We aren't. We're normal human beings, but we have the capacity to do super and wonderful things beyond what we can imagine. I, I just think that some of that just comes with building. God, I'm talking to you now. Now, now I'm, I don't want to get out of my territory. But building that internal spiritual and emotional muscles for the times when we're going to need them and won't have the strength to do it on our own. But I got to tell you, the other thing about grandma, she loved her some God. <laughs> Let me tell you. In fact, it, it was, I mean, it was a, it was a butt of jokes when I was growing up. I remember my father used to tease her all the time. He said, you know, you talk about the Lord so much, you would think you live next door. I mean, it, it was just. <laughs> I read that. Was that in the? Oh yeah, I think that is in a, and 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 it's true. But what I'm beginning, what I've realized, and I'm beginning to realize, is that somehow she built on strength of experience. But somehow she was in a partnership with God, in a partnership with the source of real energy and life. And and then she was in a community. I mean, she lived in a kind of different world than we live in. I mean, community was right around to the point they were always in your business. <laughs> I mean, you know, she kind of grew yeah. up in a world where you really did live in community. I mean, that wasn't just a neighborhood or a hood. It was actually a community. So she had three of the sources, community, um, um, building on your experiences and God. Those are the sources of the strength to get over. And I saw that in her. <laughs> Grandma had a high school education and that was it. I've seen what you're talking about. I mean, I've seen it. Like, I, I guess when I say, are you sure? Like, I, I want to, I want to believe that as our burdens get heavier, our love gets stronger. And like, oh my God, reading about your mom and your grandmother were just like spiritual experiences for me in this book. Like, I, I can't wait to you talk to you about Dorothy Strayhorn. Like, I, oh. I just cannot dig into Dorothy Strayhorn. Like, your mom just oh. is what a, I don't know. I don't know what the good word is for badass, but man, what a fierce woman. Like, yeah. yeah but really I, <laughs> I want to go back to people are going to listen to this and they're going to listen to you explain to us why we're tired. And I think I have a new understanding just in you saying like we've been cut. Not only are we facing trauma after trauma mm -hmm. driven by white supremacy, not only are we facing trauma after trauma driven by COVID pandemics inside of pandemics, everyone's hard lives just keep going, right? Like people are getting diagnosed with cancer and people are yeah. dying and babies are being born. Like, you know, like life is happening in the midst of all this. I feel like people will listen to love being the answer. And in my most cynical moments, I'm one of those people and say, no, fighting hmm. is the answer. No, no, like organizing is the answer. Mm -hmm. But you don't think fighting and organizing and love are mutually exclusive. No. Oh, no. No, not at all. I mean, the civil rights movement at its best and strongest was motivated by love. It was a fight for justice and equality that was not a fight to destroy, but a fight to build up. 
It was a fight to create a new world. So, you know, Mahatma Gandhi used and he kind of got and, and I know this is a debatable proposition, what I'm about to say, but used militaristic language to talk about those who engaged in the work of nonviolence because you are struggling against something, but not against people. You're struggling against systems and ways of being and ways of living and organizing a society that are putting some down and the people who are bent think they're benefiting from it. They're being put down at the same time. So you don't struggle against the people. You struggle against the system, the issue, the, whatever it happens to be. You seek to convert the people. You seek to transform not only oppressed, but oppressor as well, because that's the only way we all going to get free. Um, and but he mm. used language of fight and struggle to talk about that. Frederick Douglass, those who would seek freedom without agitation and struggle are like those who want crops without plowing up the ground. I mean, the nature of existence is struggle. Oh. You get Jesus on the cross. He didn't. That wasn't the whiz. He, he didn't ease on down the road. I mean, it was yeah. bloody. It was torture. It was horrible. I mean, I don't know how much Jesus Jesus gave up a whole lot to come here, to come among us. And I don't know that Jesus was on that cross saying, well, it'd be all right by Sunday. Uh-uh. That brother was dying when he hollered, my God, my God, he was help. He was crying. And to watch his mama watch him die, it was horrible. And, you know, and all the disciples, God bless Mary Magdalene. See, Mary Magdalene was like my grandma. She was going to stay at that cross no matter what, even if she didn't understand what was going on. Peter I identify with Peter and the brothers. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm gonna stay at a nice, safe distance because I don't know what's going down now. I mean, it, it's this is some real stuff, and yet something happened. Pilate did not have the last word. The empire struck back and lost. Brene, I don't know how all that works. I just trust and believe that it does. Is that faith? Yes. Is that what faith is for us? Yes. Yes. That's, you got it. That's it. Because, you know, when, when uh, Dr. King quoting that 19th, I've forgotten the abolitionist name, um, who said it first, um, and King kind of made it more pithy so we could remember it. Um, but the moral arc of the universe is long, but it is bent toward justice. The only way you can believe it's that you can actually work for justice and not give up when it gets tough, not give up when there's setbacks, not give up when, doggone it, we've been through this battle again, and here we are fighting it all over again. Not give up when it's, I mean, I remember the riots of, of 1965 and 1967 and 68. They were precipitated by police violence. And here we are again. And here we are again. Here we are again. I mean, but to not give up because that moral arc, it is long. And I don't know why. I mean, when I see God, I'm going to ask him, why, you know, couldn't you have clipped a little bit of our free will and just kind of like done something? You know, how long? But to believe that in the end, justice will. In the end, as some folks say, love wins. To believe that and not have proof of it, but to, just to take the leap is Kierkegaard's leap. And I'm going to trust mm. it, even if I can't see it. Yeah. I believe that is, Brene, sometimes that's enough to keep you going, Wh which is why folk need to go to church and synagogue and mosque, because, see, you need to get the energy to keep believing that, because 
like that old Broadway play, our arms are too short to box with God. We, we, we can't handle this kind of stuff completely, just solely on our own. We need each other. We need God. We need sources of strength and energy and vitality that come from within us. We got something to give, but we need each other to get some of that other energy and strength. And we need the source of life and love itself to infuse and energize us. I remember when I was in seminary, well, this would have been in the 70s, and it was, it was um, well, the energy crisis happened in the early 70s, I guess. Um, yeah, 70s. What was it? It was early 70s? Somewhere. It was in that. I think it was the 70s, yeah. Well, I, there was a um, Christa Stendhal who taught New Testament at, at Harvard Divinity School, um, later became a Lutheran bishop in Sweden. And he was, it was a great New Testament. I mean, he was like the New Testament. I mean, he was the Dalai Lama of New Testament scholars. And um, he published a little monograph on the Holy Spirit. And, he, and I don't remember anything else in the monograph except that he said the Holy Spirit is the energy of God. To go against the current, Mm. to live as healthily as you can and witness to health and vitality and love. I don't have enough. Michael doesn't have enough. I got some. I'm not diminishing myself. I got some, but I ain't got enough to do it on my own. It takes the energy, the energies of God, the what Tuhard Deshaun called the energies of love. And Bible says God is love. We're talking about the primal energy of everything that is. That energy, being in partnership with that energy, what Dr. King called cosmic partnership, that is how you begin to get over. And that's what my grandma figured out without having gone to one day of a seminary and not reading any theology, but just listen to a preacher talk about the Bible. And loving God like you live next door. Yes, like you live next door. <laughs> so let me ask you something. It's really interesting when you talk about spirit and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> One of the stories that made me laugh so hard in your book. It was so crazy reading your book, to be honest with you, because I fought it. I, w- I was resistant when I was reading it. I'm like... Love is yeah. not the answer. Meanness is the answer. And then you would yeah. quote one of my favorite people or my favorite lyrics or my favorite book. And I'm like, love is the answer. It was, you know, your book for me was a thin place. Oh, wow. You want to tell people what a thin place is? I don't know how to describe it. But for me, your book was a thin place. Like you on the flight when you saw, did, weren't you on a flight in the book? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, what the, 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 the easiest way to think of a thin place is it's those places, those moments those people, those experiences that don't happen all the time. But those moments when you get a sense that there's no gospel song that says, over my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. Those moments when you sense, wait a minute, God just touched me. (laughs) Wait, wait, Wait a minute, something beyond me is just happening here. Those moments when, I mean, as Howard Thurman and folk used to talk about, those moments when time is intersected by eternity, when when the human is touched by the divine, when, when God gets real. And, and when God gets real, yes. And and it may only it may be just momentary. You know what I mean? It may I mean, you know, Moses on Mount Sinai with the burning bush, who knows how long he was on there? Was it two seconds? D- hours, days? The Bible yeah. say. Because it's those moments. Yeah, you're. It doesn't actually say. 
And, and those moments are outside of time a little bit, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that I was in a constant thin place when I was reading all of the pages, but like, I had a thin, like, I had, I, I was reminded as I was reading, I'm a huge follower of Bell Hooks. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she talks about, when she talks about poverty and injustice and white supremacy, she talks about the problem ultimately being lovelessness. Yeah. And that's why love is the answer because the problem is lovelessness. And when I was reading your book, I felt so much connection between like, I don't know, I just felt I had a thin place moment of this is true, but love is really damn hard. Yeah. Like love is not easy. No, no, it's not. Anybody says it is lying. (laughs) Yeah. And doesn't get it then. If you, if you think love is like Hallmark cards, it's not, you know, okay. So we're talking about the spirit. We're talking about the Holy spirit. (laughs) I have to laugh because, okay, so there's two stories I want you to tell us, um, if you don't mind, because they were, okay, so they're so good. So first of all, your dad, Uh your your grandfather, your dad's dad Uh was a Baptist preacher. Is that right? He was a Baptist preacher. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, but there's a moment when your mom, and this is in the 40s, I think, Dorothy Strayhorn, right? Yeah. Uh Your mom, I mean, is... At the University of Chicago, uh-huh. studying mathematics, uh-huh. and introduces your dad yeah. to the Episcopal Church. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, tell me that story about your dad. Your dad's first time in the Episcopal in the Anglican Communion, as it were. It really was, and it was, and it was. Um, I don't. I don't know the year. Um, cause she had, gra- she probably graduated from Chicago and was teaching math at Wilberforce university, um, an HBCU in, um, Xenia in Ohio, Southern Ohio. And she had become an Episcopalian when she was in Chicago or soon before that, but, but when she was there, I think. And, um, actually I see, I'm putting all this together after the fact, I never asked them this stuff while they were alive, you know? Um, but. Anyway, so he they met. He was at the seminary because he was studying at the old Payne Divinity School uh, to become a preacher. Um, And he was Baptist. He was already licensed, but not yet ordained. And so they started dating. She was teaching at the undergrad school and he was at the seminary. And I don't know. And at some point he found out that she had become an Episcopalian. And he didn't know anything about the Episcopal. I mean, everybody was Baptist that he knew. And so I. He was apparently curious enough to say, well, I'm going to go to church with you. So there were like two things going on. Remember, this is like in the late 40s, this is just after the war. So basically, you're in a white church in southern Ohio, which was really up south at that point. So it was kind of surprising to him. He was in a white church, and I don't know if there were any other blacks there or any other people of color, but it couldn't have been many if there were. And he did, he had never been in a white church or predominantly white room with white people before. That was interesting. Um, But then when it came time for communion, you know, mommy went up to take communion and he had never seen people take communion drinking out of the same cup, out of the common cup, out of the chalice. Um, Because again, in the Baptist tradition, uh, many Protestant and Reformed traditions, you have the individual cups when communion Sunday happens. So that's the only way he had seen communion. So he sees my mother go up 
who was very unambiguous. And my mother was even darker than I am. And I'm fairly dark. She was darker than I am. So there was no ambiguity about what ethnic group she was with. She goes up and everybody at the altar rail is white. And, you know, the priest is given the bread. Well, the bread was easy because that was, you know, everybody gets their own. But when it came with a cup, he was watching with the cup. He said, oh, I'm waiting. He would tell the story. And when we were kids, we got tired of hearing the story. But, you know, but he would tell the story and it did enlarge every time he told it. But <laughs> if it's any preacher story, it's going to get that fish is going to get so big. It'll be Moby Dick before it's over. But so he tells the story. Uh, the priest gets there with the chalice and mommy drinks from it. And after her, there were white people. And he was waiting to see what happened. And the priest gave them, you know, the blood of Christ, cup of salvation, or whatever they said in those days, and nothing happened. And and that's where he would actually, I mean, and th that really was the reason he became an Episcopal. And he said, any church where blacks and whites drink from the same cup knows something about the gospel of Jesus that I want to be a part of. And that's... Mm. That was a thin moment for him. He never used that language, yeah. but that's that was a thin place. He saw something of the kingdom or the reign of God, the beloved community in that moment. Now, he later learned that the church didn't live up to that completely all the time, but it was there. The ideal was there. The, the vision was there. And and he lived for that vision. I mean, even, you know, even to his dying day, I mean, after a stroke and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, he was still the same character. And he, you know, I mean, again, he, when my mother got sick, even, I mean, you know, this was, um, you know, I would have been like, not teenage yet, you know, like nine or 10, somewhere thereabouts. She got sick when we were visiting in New York and she was in the hospital for not quite a year, but almost he would do church on Sunday and Sunday evening, he would take us to a family in the church and we'd stay there for three days um, at the Bullock's house. He would drive to New York from Buffalo to New York city was an eight hour drive on the throughway. And then he would be with mommy, you know, and grandma and all of them. And then he would drive back. Sometimes grandma would come with him. <laughs> And do his church thing from roughly Thursday until Sunday. And then there was a point at which when we was he was eventually they were able to bring her to Buffalo. So that she was in a nursing home in Buffalo. At that point, it was just basically, you know, a feeding tube and and that kind right. of stuff. And but at least she was in Buffalo. So it made it possible. But he he ran out. I mean, I didn't know this as a kid. He was running out of money because once you get back, once you were in a nursing home. Uh, yeah. Blue Cross Blue Shield wasn't paying anymore. And so there was a bill every week in the nursing home. So he started working a second job. So he had a church and then he was working, doing a second job, teaching and doing human relations in the city. And, you know, when I, again, he didn't talk, about, you know, folk in those days didn't talk about, and I'm not sure he knew at the time, like the song says, how I got over. But he kept doing the things of faith, I think, even when he whether he could feel them or not, the rituals of faith. It's like they carry you and you can't carry yourself. Um, and he kept doing that stuff and kept family was around and community was around. And, you know, family is a pain in the neck. I mean, you know, but that's yeah. But God love them. Can't do with them. Can't do without them, you know, but they were around and there was a community around. 
And I saw it again in him. Um, and this went on for not quite two years, but almost this whole thing for almost two years. And I know it wore part of him down. There's no question. I mean, I could see when I was it older, have to. It did. Yeah. It, it wore down, but he kept going. You know, you keep going. And while he didn't say that, it was love of his wife, his children, and ultimately his God that kept him going. And he was not just existing off fumes. He he had to have sources of energy. You know, I mean, there's no gospel song that says somebody prayed for me. Well, somebody prayed for him. <laughs> Um, there were folk who prayed for him and kept him going. That's why I say I've seen people live off of love. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah, it's not easy. It's not always pretty. I mean, it, and, you know, and at the time you don't know how you're going to get through necessarily, but it can see it. you through. You know, I so like I said, I didn't. It wasn't a theoretical. You know, I mean, I'm not a. A, a theologian. I'm not a, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I do theology. I, I learned from theologians, but I've just seen it. Brene, we can make it not, not just on our own. We need each other. We need God, but this kind of love has a power that I can only describe because I've seen it. I can't analyze why I just know. I, yeah, I think that like, to me, that's, all of the pieces, when I read something that helps me put pieces of my thinking and my experiences together that make sense, that's what I'm grateful for. And I think for the, for your book, I think believing in love and not not rainbow love and, mm-hmm. and ponies, but like scrappy, gritty, fighting love. Yes. And believing that will get us to, to me is, that's my definition of faith. Believing yeah. that is what faith is to me. Like I don't, you can't, as a, as a, as a social scientist, I can tell you right now, you're not going to be able to, you know, quantify love. Um, but my faith calls me to believe that love is the answer. Again, the gritty fighting justice kind of yeah. love and the other thing that I learned from your book that a couple of things, when your mom got sick, and it's a very traumatic story because y'all were just hanging out mm. and having fun and an ambulance showed up and took her away and you yeah. never saw her again um, yeah. until she was back in Buffalo in that nursing home. Right. But it was for you, what I make from the book, so tell me if I'm wrong, the birth of the understanding of the beloved community because people showed up all over your life because your dad was gone going back. And there were just people who, and they didn't love on you like, oh, poor, these poor kids. They were like, where's your homework? And, you know, like, you know, they, they, they they loved, yeah, yeah, they, they loved, loved you. And so this, you know, I, I, I'm a big, I don't know if fan's the right word, follower maybe of Dr. Bernice King and the work she's doing uh-huh. um, from her dad's work, from Martin Luther King Jr.'s yep. work and and the creation of the beloved community. Like I left the book thinking my faith in love is actually faith and I cannot do this alone. And those two things mm-hmm. piss me mm-hmm. off just to be honest with you, because I want to do yeah. everything alone and I like to judge people yeah. and, and I feel hateful right now toward people. Like really, I mean, yeah. coming to the end of this national convention, um, yeah. the Republican national convention, like I, 
thinking about Jacob Blake, and I made a commitment to his mom when I saw her speak that every time I said his name, I would say Jacob Blake, father, brother, son, cousin, uncle. Yeah. yeah. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. That's going to take a lot of love. Yeah. How do we... You you quote this movie. It's really interesting. I've never seen the movie. It's called The Hurricane. It's the true story of Reuben the Hurricane Carter, a, one of the greatest boxers of the century. So there was a quote from the movie that you share in your book that I want to ask you about. The quote is, in the movie, Carter tells Martin, um, just reading that for the attribution, we must transcend the places that hold us. Yes. I'm going to ask a big question, and it's probably doesn't have an answer. I believe one of the things that holds us right now hmm. is white supremacy. That holds and us? Fe- yes. It, 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 like we're held by this fear oh, of, yeah. yeah, how do we transcend what holds us? Like he transcended his jail cell like in this movie by reading and being and transcending the confines, his physical confines and learning about the world. Like how do we transcend wow. fear? Like I think love and fear, they don't work together well, do they? Yeah, no, they don't. <laughs> it's real oil and water. Yeah. So how do we transcend fear right now? I know it's a big you know, question, but it's like. Hurricane Carter may have answered. I, I, I hadn't thought of that. The, you know, the, Denzel Washington plays the character in the movie. It's worth seeing. Um, I, I'm going to watch it for sure this weekend. Yeah, it's it's really, it should be on Netflix or something. He, I mean, he was bitter for a, a long period of time because he really was innocent. I mean, it, it was one of those unjust incarcerations, but it was, he was really smart. He was really very bright. And it was, he started reading <laughs> and he started reading a lot and he realized as he was reading that the forces that incarcerated him and his incarceration, there were bigger realities. And that if he could tap into those bigger realities, if you will, I mean, he didn't use the God language directly, but if he mm-hmm. t- could transcend, if he could, uh, that, that there was a freedom that was possible even in the midst of incarceration. I mean, th- there's an old spiritual it's oh freedom, oh freedom, oh freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That was a spiritual song by slaves. Before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That is a slave declaring emancipation before Abe Lincoln probably had been born. And that's what uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter was talking about. Um, I transcend my condition. I'm already free. Now I just have to make it a physical, tangible reality by getting lawyers to work on it. But you can't incarcerate my soul. You cannot hold my soul in chains. See, that's wow. spiritual emancipation that precedes the physical. I mean, I think it's is it Walter Brueggemann in one. And it, it was one of his early books. This, I'm going way back in time now talks about the moment of liberation in the Exodus with Moses and all that stuff. It didn't happen at the Red Sea. That's not when the Exodus happened. It didn't happen in the plagues of Egypt. It didn't happen when Pharaoh said, you know, y'all get out of here. And the Hebrew slaves got free. It happened when Moses went up Mount Sinai and saw an alternate vision of reality, that Pharaoh's static vision of the world 
of slavery, slaves and masters, was not the only reality, was not the own vision. And Moses saw another vision, another what, what Brueggemann called an alternate possibility to the static gods and enslavement of Egypt. When that happened, Moses was free. And it was only a matter of time before the Hebrew slaves would be free. Okay, I got I got to stop you here. So I got to stop you because I got to ask a question. I, I believe that this eman- emancipation happened in the heart and in the mind. It transcended before the actual work of the policy happened. Do you think we're kind of in that moment right now? Do you think we're in a moment where we're, we're like, we, I, I feel like we're in a point of no return right now. We have seen what's possible. We have seen what's happening, yes. especially with the police. Like yes. now we got to put the systems of accountability in place, yes. but what, ha- what is the, what is the pain and the work between the moment of seeing Brueggemann's as an alternative possibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the actual happening, the actual changes that affect our everyday life. Like what kind of faith and love is it going to take to get us between what's possible and what the just shit work that has to be done to get there? Uh-huh. Well, go back to the Bible. What happens in the story? Moses has this vision of alternate reality. And what does God say to him? Now, don't just sit here and enjoy the vision. He says, you need to now I want you to go back to Egypt and tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, now what's going on there is, first of all, you've got Moses, who's a conflicted person, because remember, he was born a Hebrew, but he grew up um, a, a prince of Egypt. Remember, he got adopted by one of the daughters yeah. of Pharaoh. So here you got he's got what W.E. Du Bois called that double consciousness. Um, yes. You know, he's black and American. He's um, Hebrew and Egyptian. I mean, and he was actually the reason he was on Mount Sinai was because he was running away from that. He was actually running away from his identity. God was sending him back into his ver- the core of his identity to be a Hebrew again, to use the skills that he had learned as an Egyptian prince. He had learned the military arts. He had learned the political strategies of the Egyptians. He knew how to negotiate with Pharaoh because when that woman princess took him out of the Nile River and raised him as a prince of Egypt, she taught him all the arts and the skills of the Egyptians. And so he went back and negotiated with Pharaoh. That Now, the Bible, it's in biblical language. Um, he goes back and says, let my people go. Well, now there's more to it than just that one sentence, but let my people go. Here's the program. We want to be free. We want you to release all the Hebrews. Da, 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 da. We want them to have provisions for their journey. You know, and you can imagine there was a whole pack negotiating package. Pharaoh says, no. He says, okay. You say, no, I'm going to go back to Montgomery and we're going to have a bus boycott. And then Pharaoh gets religion and say, well, maybe I'll let y'all go now. And so they relent on the, on, you see what I mean? The plagues of Egypt were, now I have to admit, they weren't necessarily nonviolent uh, means of protest. But but the point is they were means of protest. Um, they were actions that would push Pharaoh in the direction of eventually setting the Hebrews captive free. And the final plague is the night of the Passover. I mean, there are all sorts of plagues, you know, flies come on folk and, you know, boils on, I mean, all sorts of plagues. That is God negotiating with Pharaoh. And so Moses had a program that would lead to the freedom of the folk. 
He went to Farrell, offered the program, said, if you do this, we'll leave. We'll be out of your hair. Farrell said no. He said, well, OK, then we go. When the negotiations broke down, this is standard nonviolent negotiating. When the negotiations break down, you have to do something that will precipitate a crisis that will begin to move the structure, the system to move toward the justice that you want in, in whatever it is you're trying to get. So Moses is negotiating. This is all in the Bible. He's negotiating with Pharaoh back and forth. Pharaoh resisting, another plague comes. Pharaoh resist, another plague comes. Pharaoh resist, another plague comes. Let me tell you what's going on. The NBA may stop mm -hmm. in its tracks. That's mm -hmm. negotiating with Pharaoh. If Major League Baseball stops in its track, that's negotiating with Pharaoh. If the NFL, which I love, I mean, I love sports, but I'm sorry, that's negotiating with, and you may see a ripple effect. Who knows where this is going to, how this is going to unfold, but it's not going to stop. And eventually the night of the Passover is going to happen. It's going to happen when all these forces, social forces come together. And Pharaoh, again, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't name the Pharaoh. We don't know whether it was it Ramses Pharaoh, which which Pharaoh. It doesn't what does that name mean? Why? Because Pharaoh is the structure, the system, mm. the power of the system. And you can put any name in that system and they're going to function like a Pharaoh. And that it, that's why it wasn't personal. I mean, that's the amazing thing. It wasn't about the individual Pharaoh. He wasn't mm -hmm. the problem. I mean, he was the problem, but he wasn't the problem. It was the system and the structure that he represented, symbolized, and had control over. And it controlled him. And it wasn't until the night of the Passover that finally it was over. And the next morning, the Hebrew slaves were set free. And that's how social change happens. It doesn't, there's got to be pressure of some God. sort. It, it, it doesn't, I mean, I had a, uh, this is years ago when I was a, I mean, when I was a young bishop, this was 20 years ago, and I had a woman named Susie Miller who's now died and gone on to glory, but she was a wonderful coach and um, and really spiritual director as well. And she used to say, and it was true, you know, uh, coaches and people like that used to say this, I don't know if they still do or not, but she said, nothing changes until the pain of remaining the same is perceived as greater than the pain of the change. Oh, God. That's tr that's hard. I, I, that's hard. I know. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, gosh, can't we find an easier way? Well, sometimes <laughs> there is an easier way. But but systems don't change until remaining the same. As the reason the Montgomery bus boycott worked was not just because of the moral values that uh, the Montgomery Imp Improvement Association was articulating. I mean, that was part of it. That was a part of it. But it was because business interests saw business getting hurt and the business interest got to the political interest and said, yes. we're going to change this. So it was it was a combination of moral courage with tangible reality that, look, this is bad for business. Yeah, that's why I think these sports boycotts really matter right now. Exactly. Exactly. God, do you think <laughs> I'm just having this weird like I am I'm like like y'all I can't host this podcast right now because I'm at church like I am listening I'm I'm at church right now we're um, church. We're I'm at church with Bishop Curry y'all y'all are on your own with like this podcast I don't know what's gonna happen but um, I'm fixing to start singing but okay Lord. you know I think about Moses you know 
and I think about he's got the what do you what do we call that thing again where you can see what's possible? You had a term for it. Is it Brueggemann? The the alternative oh, reality, oh, alternate possibility. Yeah. Alternate, alternate possibility. possibility. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen that I've seen that term invoked recently while we're talking about when we're talking about defunding the police. Like people just don't have the alternative possibility mm-hmm. right now, the mind to do it. But you know, like when you're telling that story of goosebumps, because I'm thinking, okay, we've got our own version of plagues right now. Like like yeah. the coronavirus, the 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 police brutality is a, a is a is a public health pandemic. It is yeah. like it is not a it's a, it's, you know, we have our own, you know, the virus doesn't discriminate, but Americans do. And you can tell by who's right. dying and who's being ravaged. So like, so it is the alternative possibility, the, the spiritual imagination of something different, but then a program in place of accountability. And also mm-hmm. to your point about the Montgomery businesses, you know, talking to people where they live, which is money sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah, they get that. Then everybody, as I say, everybody comes to Jesus. Everybody gets religion then. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask this question because I keep thinking about your grandmother, um, (laughs) about when she, (laughs) when she asked, I don't know if she asked your, your dad or your mom, but she asked someone like, how do y'all know when the Holy Spirit gets to church? Because everybody's just just real quiet and shuffling around and sitting down and standing up. Like she's like, nobody's singing and jumping up. Was, That's right. I, that that was so funny because oh. Episcopalians are so reserved. Oh, I know, I know. We used to be God's frozen. We're thawing, but yeah, it's well. And in those days, I got to tell you, this was before. I mean, this would have been like 1965, 66, somewhere thereabout. And the Episcopal Church began the thaw a little bit when they experimented with, they were called trial liturgies at the time, that included a new innovation that was very much resisted called the peace. What? Because up until that time, there was no point in the service where people interacted with people. I mean, maybe the offering, I guess, but, but I mean, there was no interaction with people. You didn't talk in church. You just said the prayers and, and that kind of stuff, sang the hymns, and you stood up, you sat down, and you kneeled. And that was, if there was any talking, it was when you got out of church. Um, even when people came in, there was no talking. The churches were quiet, and people said their prayers, and nobody, I mean, nobody, so there was no, <laughs> there, there, that's just the way it was. So grandma was actually describing the way the church acted. This was before, again, the peace kind of broke that down where people started talking to each other, shaking each other's hands and greeting each other at the peace. But before that, she was right. So she used to say, y'all look like zombies walking around. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and she and daddy would go back and forth. Oh, they would, they would, I mean, they used to banter back. That was sort of standard banter. Oh, but that's, uh, it's, it's. It's really funny because I took when I went, I did a talk on Martin Luther King Day last year at Ebenezer Baptist. Um, Bernice uh-huh. King invited me to go and give a talk. And uh-huh. I took my son, who's 15 now, and he had never been to a predominantly all black church. I mean, it was there was uh-huh. some diversity in there, but he had never been into a Baptist church before. And there was like there were people with tambourines and sequin suits, oh, yeah. and people would, you know, oh, yeah. jump up and you know, and the Holy Spirit got him. And I, you know, and I had I had experienced that many times. But when we got into the cab to go to the Atlanta airport, my son was like, 
look, if you really want me to go to church and get confirmed, we need to move to this church. That that was that was good. That I, I understood. And I was like, and so so I could see yeah. the I could see your grandmother thinking, like, I wonder sometimes just between you and me and you know, the people listening, let me just say what I'm thinking. And then if it's not good, you yeah. can tell me it's not right. Um I've also been to traditionally black churches or Baptist churches and funerals. And I see mm. people wailing and crying and holding each other. And then I go to our church with funerals and mostly the white folks just kind of sit and like, could you like ordain a, a, a decree or something from your position where it says we need to move around some more? And, and like, I wonder if all that reserve gets in our way of, you know, if you're saying we recharge with community, I wonder if all that reserve means we're not fully charging our spiritual selves on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I am learning that there can be power in the shout and there can be power in the silence. That's true. That's really good. They're they're really, I mean, it's like the spirit has wings and both, you know what I mean? Yeah. I have to admit, I'm not somebody given to, I'm my grandmother's child. I I know that. (laughs) So I'm not innate. I'm not naturally given to the silence, but boy, God, Brene, I can tell you the times when I get away on retreat and, and in in silence, um, you know, except for the prayers and when when I can slip off to a monastery and just kind of be, I, I mean, the first day is hell. I mean, because like I'm looking, can I oh. find a TV or something? But then some. Then there's a point. There's a point of turning where there's a a you just present in a different kind of way. That's true. And I know God's around, whether you can feel God or not. I don't know. I just know that I'm being present to that moment in a very different way. And and there's a, I mean, that's a thin place, thin. And I've known it. And. Every once in a while, I mean, I'll, I'll, um, there were moments when I would just take Aretha's album, Amazing Grace. It's that mm. old one. Well, it was probably, lit. I don't know when she did it, in the late 70s. Oh, they did but, it live. Yes, I got it. Oh, I oh, got it. it. There's moments oh, yes. when I'll just put that on and play. And it's like, I don't, I, somehow, it's like, I feel like the energy that gave grandma energy infuses me when I, all I have to do is listen to it. And I don't know, I have no, there's something about her voice, you know, where she talks a little bit and mm-hmm. there's something, I mean, it's, it's almost as though it takes me back to a world that's not really here anymore. That's actually changed. I mean, even in the black church, the reserve has gotten real. Um, it's not completely, not everywhere, but, but it's, 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 it's just the culture is changing. I mean, it, that, the that, culture's changing. Yeah. I mean, I remember, gosh, as, as a kid. More on my father's side than my mother's side, but more on my father's side of the family, family funerals. I mean, you just knew somebody was going to shout, somebody was going to pass out, and 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 there was going to be a lot of catharsis. Now, sometimes people would go overboard, and you know, okay, she does it every funeral. You know, I mean, there was families know who know who's going right, to shout, right. pretty much when they're going to shout. I mean, all that, but there was something about it that was healthy. I remember getting to mm-hmm. seminary and taking pastoral care courses and all that kind of stuff and how about the need to get stuff out. I mean, just to let folk express stuff. Don't hold it. And I said, I'll be doggone. I guess my family did have something right <laughs> that we used to g- giggle about. You kind of say, oh, Lord, there she goes again. 
but we are human mm-hmm. and we do feel stuff and we hurt and, I've, and 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 we hurt and let me tell you when i'm in pain i want to scream i don't want to numb it because then i carry it forever yeah i mean i'm i'm way out of my field but i just i know that just sometimes when you just get it out just mm-hmm. i mean there's some freedom in that the weeping and a wailing i mean i can hear yeah. those screams I can hear them. I don't hear them much anymore. Not as much. I can I can hear them too. And I, I can remember for me as a young person for the first time in a black church at a funeral, when I heard the 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 wailing and the weeping and the screaming, it for me it was the first sense of God congruence in my life around grief because it matched what I felt. It didn't, it wasn't like pull yourself together, gain control, emotional stoicism. And I'll tell you why I ask about this. It doesn't seem a random thing from our conversation for me because I think people in pain cause pain. I think people who hurt, hurt people. And we don't know what to do with our pain. And we're not, we're so not allowed to express it or feel it or wail or weep that we end up working it out on other people. And I think that's also part of the great divide and what's happening today. Like, I don't know if it's 25 years of doing this research, but it's like, instead of beer goggles, like we used to talk about when we were in college, I got fear goggles. Like I see, when I see people enraged, I see fear. Yeah. And I think, and pain. And I'm like, work that out, wail and weep and gnash and fall to your knees, but don't club over other people over the head with your pain. It's like, we got to be better at that, right? Yeah, you are so right. And it's it's like you do, and being present with each other to, I mean, it's like that, you know, that Bible passage says, bear one another's burdens. Well, I got a feeling some of that is just, just holding each other's pain, just holding each other so we can, when you got to weep, weep. And yes. we'll be here, we won't run away. No shame, no judgment. No. And when I got to weep, I'll weep. And you hold, I mean, that's community. I mean, that yeah. actually is, um, you know, it's funny when you're talking about funerals. I was, there there were, I think there are a couple of funeral stories. I mean, there are in the book. But, but the one thing that's not in the book, I don't think, I can't remember if I actually wrote it in there or not, but. I, I've, it, the old time funerals, it's a little bit different now, but the old time funerals, there are all these sensorial experiences I have. And and it's the shout, which is almost like an invocation of there's something transcendent going on. Here. There's something beyond the normal happening here, even as we're burying, you know, Aunt Callie or whoever it is. And that that that's a suggestion of transcendence for me. <laughs> Um, there's also, and there's also the family dynamics going on in the family, which is always soap opera in and of itself. That's guaranteed. But then there's this, and I don't know why I just thought of this, but I can smell frying chicken. (laughs) (laughs) The smell of frying chicken somewhere else in the church building. That is, that's just part of the funeral experience. And it's like, that's life. (laughs) You know, that's kind of. That's life. It's all in there together. (laughs) You write a, I mean, you write a lot about food um, okay, in yeah, the not book. Yeah, food. I tried to keep it healthy because I'm. <laughs> oh, I'm going to give you a solid C minus on keeping it healthy because I was like, I was getting so hungry at some point. I was like, okay, grits and you know all the stuff that it was. I have to tell you this funny story because it's it's so it's so part of what you talk about about 
about the love and the sameness that we have that I um when I was working for AT&T, I guess in my late 20s, I was they sent me to Kansas City for a month to do work and my co-facilitation partner there was a black woman and we became really good friends and she said, "I'm going to invite you over to my house." And I said, that's great. And she goes, no, it's like, you're the white first white person I've ever invited to my house. And I said, oh my God, oh, that's wow. so, I'm honored. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. She said, I'm going to cook for you too. And I said, oh my gosh, what are you going to cook? She said, I'm going to cook soul food. And I said, oh my God, this is so exciting. Great. So, and we were going to go out that night dancing with a bunch of her friends. And I said, that's so fun. So I get to her house and, I, and I'm spending the night. I'm spending the night at her house. It's first like this. So uh-huh. I got my bag and it was just great because I'd been up in a hotel for a month, which was terrible. And so when I got to her house, she put dinner on the table and I was like, oh, this looks, this looks, this looks, I mean, this looks delicious. I thought we were going to do soul food. She goes, this is country ribs and greens. And I said, this is Sunday dinner at my house every Sunday. Yeah, and she goes, yeah, you what? Yeah. I, yeah and, I, and I was like, she said, what do you mean? I said, this is country ribs and greens made with, like, I'm assuming you make it with bacon grease because that's what we use out of oh, a tin, yeah. out of a Folgers can <laughs> that we collect it where we fry bread. Yeah. And she goes, <laughs> and she just looked at me and she goes, and your name's Brene. Are you sure you're not black somewhere? And I said, yeah. I- I'm sure. But, but so when you were writing about food, you wrote this sentence that, you know, your family left the South and Jim Crow, the great migration. And you uh-huh. have this sentence that made me laugh that you said, we lived North, but we ate South. Oh yeah, <laughs> it really was true. <laughs> if you, in those days you could buy grits, but only in black communities. <laughs> I mean, now really? you can get them anywhere in Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, anywhere. But that, back then, you just had to you had to go into an ethnic community to get ethnic food, and it was imported from I don't know where they got it from, but <laughs> oh yeah, that was imported. Yeah, healthily soul food is the new art, but it's coming. You know, when we had the family, you know, Thanksgiving dinners and. And my wife's aunt would always come and she would always bring the greens, but she transitioned from the ham hocks to Mm -hmm. smoked turkey, you know, the smoked turkey wings and necks. And how'd that go with the family? It's everybody adjusted because everybody (laughs) needs, because they want to live, you know? I mean, they want to live. Yeah, they want to live. And everybody adjusted. I was reading grits and grits, and it was like, you know, my grandmother actually coated our fried okra in grits, not cornmeal. So she, really? she, so our fried okra was cooked in oh, grits. Work. So yeah. it was like grits three times a day. You got it in the morning. You got it with eggs. You got it. Okay. So let me ask. So I want to, I want to, two things before we go into, I have like a 10 rapid fire question I want to do with you before oh, we Lord. do that. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> it'll be fun. Um, you talk about one of my favorite philosophers and theologians in the book, Howard Thurman. And you talk about, his first brush with the divine when he watched Haley's comment. And it was 1910. You write, there were no lights in his town to dim the heavens. He and his mother watched the comet fill the darkness with light as it made its journey across the sky. Thurman felt terror for a moment. After all, for weeks, everyone had been talking about the possibility of a terrible aftermath of the comet falling from the sky. But his mother was calm, reassuring him that God would keep them safe. Something shifted in Thurman, and the fear left him. He felt one with the comet and a sudden awareness and awe of what created and controlled the comet. In reflection, Thurman gave name to his awareness, the givenness of God. Yeah. The givenness of God, which the human heart, by its very nature, hungers to connect with. 
when we succeed, you write, we feel it. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yeah. Yeah. That is so beautiful. And then, then to make things even more amazing on this page, you write, I'll leave you with the hymn. His eye is on the sparrow made famous today by the singer Lauren Hill. The lyrics you share with us in your book. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free for his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. You conclude by saying God's love is everywhere in all things. And that includes you. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's really true. Amazing. It's Renee. It's really true. And just living life out of that, whether you feel it or not, whether you feel it or not, dang it. That is, that is say that again. What do you mean? Whether you feel it or not? Like, are you saying that like really take the the mystery of faith leap and just say, I don't feel it right now, but I believe. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. It was Karen Armstrong in one of her books talks about her struggle with faith mm-hmm. and believing. And um, I mean, she's a historian, theologian, but a historian. So good. Primarily. Yes. She talked about wrestling with depression herself. And she said the intersection of her faith and all of that. And it's, it's really the spiral staircase is the name of the book. And at some point in the book, she talks about realizing that faith and belief, that belief, that even the word believe is not about assent to a set of propositions. They may be true, but that's not what it means. That it actually, the root of it is in the words, the the Latin core, do, heart. Um, mm. That to believe is is not necessarily, first off, to, to give my mental assent to. To believe it's, cordo is related to cardia, is to give my heart to. Oh, man. And she said that, just that realization that that's the root of the word of credo, of to believe, it's just, I give my heart to. I got my doubts. I got my fear. I got all that stuff's going to crowd in. That's that's human. But darn it, I give my heart. Here, you got me. God, that. Brene, that's. That's life right there. That's, that's life, life changing. Yeah. It really is. You know, and because none of I mean, I don't know. I mean, although I think about going time travel um, it's probably not a good idea because I got a feeling there were viruses and all sorts of things back in other ages that we couldn't handle if we got. Plus, I got a feeling the world really probably stunk (laughs) a couple centuries ago. I mean, people were not into deodorant. Yeah, no. Yeah. So it's probably not. We would not survive long, (laughs) I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think you go back and even the stories of people in the Bible and all that kind of stuff, if you start looking at them as people, and how does a normal human being react? People like me, how do I react? And then look back at the biblical descriptions. You actually start to see, wait a minute, I put a stained glass there. That wasn't a stained glass. Look through the glass. Oh, my God. Oh, I get that reaction. That's the reaction. You know what I mean? That there actually are human emotions and reactions and very human stuff. We've just put stained glass on them and you can't see it through. You can't see through stained glass. You got to take the stained glass away. Look at the real people. 
I mean, the Moses who tries to get out of going back to Egypt, the Mary Magdalene, I mean, not Mary, not Magdalene, the other Mary, <laughs> the other Mary fussing with Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, you know, she is pissed off. <laughs> These now, are real people. Her. Yeah. He said, where you been? <laughs> you supposed to be the Lord. So, so you, you know, I mean, Lord it up. Sure yeah. yeah. I mean, you get these, these, these are real people. And to realize they, they somehow did walk by faith, not by sight. In the end, they gave their hearts and just said, here, take me. Mm. Warts and all. That for me is freeing for me. I mean, because I know Michael, you know, and Michael ain't no saint. Michael ain't, you know, I mean, I know when I get mad and I'm a pretty good guy most of the time. But hit me and you'll see, find another side of Michael. You know what I mean? I mean, that's right. That's people. Yeah. And we can't give up on us. We're all we have. You know, it's like this. Yeah, no, we're it. Yeah. <laughs> it's I like mean, good and, news and bad news. <laughs> that's right. yeah. We're all we got. Okay. All right. You ready for the uh, the, the quick 10? Oh, I'm scared to death. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please. Come on. All right. Number one, fill in the blank. Vulnerability is. Just getting real. Okay. Number two, you're called, you, Bishop Curry, are called to do something really difficult and you have to be really brave, but your fear is real. You can feel it right here in your throat. What's the very first thing you do? Sit on it. Sit on it. Actually, sit on it. Yeah, yeah. Don't decide to do anything. Just kind of sit on it. Sit a while. Okay. What is something that people often get wrong about you? That I'm wise. (laughs) No, they don't get that wrong. They know I'm not. (laughs) Okay. They know that already. I don't believe it, but I'm going to keep going. Number four, last show that you binged and loved. What's something on TV that you've watched that you really loved watching? Oh, uh, well, the Jack Ryan series, the... Um, yeah, Jack, I think they, is it on, it's on Amazon Prime, right? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. One of your favorite movies. You know what? I've got a new favorite movie. It's Night Shift with uh, Kevin Hart and <laughs> <Yes>. Tiffany Haddish. <laughs> I mean, I know I was supposed to say a Fellini film. Of course. I'm not, no, but actually, I love that movie. It's it's It's, it's funny. It's pure comedy. and But it's also, you know, a guy going back to get his GED. <laughs> And it's oh, all this awkwardness, night school, craziness. Yes, yeah, night, night school. school, night school. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. That. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That's funny that that's your favorite movie. I love that. Tell me a concert you'll never forget. I was in high school. We went to a concert, and I can't remember who the headliner was. I mean, who, who we actually went to see, but there was a warm up guy doing the warm up. You know how they? Yeah. You sure. Know, would have. Up and comers. I don't remember who the headline. I really don't. Whether it's the OJs or the Temptation, I don't remember. The warm up was Barry Manilow, and I've never forgotten. <laughs> I love Barry Manilow. <laughs> he came on and like he said, and now we introduce Barry Manilow, and everybody said, "We came here to see the Temptations or the OJs <laughs> or somebody." I don't know who was, who is this? He tore it up. I mean, people <laughs> went crazy. Um, they said, we don't need to see whoever we came here to see. It was, uh, he hadn't gotten big yet. That's awesome. He was a warm-up. That is awesome. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. <laughs> okay, favorite meal. And you don't have to be, in, in, in favorite meal like in heaven. It has no calories, no carbs, whatever you want. That would be fried chicken, chitlins. Macaroni and cheese. My wife is going to, she's going to kill me for saying this in public. Uh, macaroni and cheese, 
collard greens cooked the old fashioned way, cornbread with some jalapeno in it, sweet tea. What's for dessert? Oh, some sweet potato pie, real oh, sweet potato pie, the kind yeah. where you, the strings, you know, that, that, that kind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could meet you for dinner. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. What's on your nightstand? Um, Eddie Glaub's book on James Baldwin. J- oh, got, got I'm it. I'm kind of Great. reading through it now. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you joy. Just a, a single snapshot of a moment that just really brings you joy. Oh, playing with my grandson when he's on good baby. <laughs> yeah. When he's Stipulation. not. Okay, go back to your mama. Go back to your mother. <laughs> Okay, what's one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm just grateful to be alive. I mean, you know, I mean, I, at this stage of life, I, you know, I, I, I jokingly have said, I don't say to my family, but if I dropped dead tomorrow, I'd have nothing to complain about. You know, I really wouldn't. I've been blessed and I, and I know it. And, and um, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, I, I've been blessed. And, um, and just knowing that and, uh, Getting up the next morning and you keep on going. Keep on going. Like old folk you say, woke me up again. <laughs> he woke me up again. <laughs> I got to ask you this last question. We've got a playlist that we're going to put of yours on Spotify. It's got your six most favorite songs. The Impossible Dream by Roberta Flack. That's Life oh, yeah, by yeah. Frank, Frank Sinatra. Glory by uh-huh. Common and John Legend. If There's a Hell Below by Curtis Mayfield. Uh-huh. Mary, Don't You Weep by Aretha Franklin. And then the oh, yeah. outlier right here would be Old Town Road, <laughs> which is also on your list that you gave us. I love that. Well, I love that. And I love the video. <laughs> it, it is just the greatest. It's not, it's beyond absurd. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's- <laughs> so tell me, tell me what this play, in, in one or two words, tell me what this playlist says about you. Well, there's a fun side. Yeah. <laughs> there's just something that's just, Pure joy. I mean, just pure fun joy or whatever. There's there's uh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan, tell tell Martha not to moan, Pharaoh's army got drowned. I mean, there's a faith side. Mm-hmm. I think of, I mean, of a God who's pretty deeply integrated. Mm-hmm. But that's, I was, you know, Brene, I, I was, I, I grew up in, a, it was in the book, I had to share that story from, remember from uh, Lorraine Hansberry's um, Raising in the Sun. Oh, um, yeah. The daughter said, you know, no God. And the mother slaps her. And we had this debate um, and with the publishers when we were doing it. They said, you know, she slapped her. Should we include that? Because that sounds like parental abuse. <laughs> it's in the play. I don't know. It's like it was like 50 <laughs> years ago. She was an adult. She wasn't a little kid. This was, But, you know, where the mother kind of hits her and says, in this house, there is still God or is always God. You know, I kind of grew up in that where just Daddy saying to grandma, you talk about the Lord so much, you would think he lived next door. It was like Jesus was next door, was a neighbor, which in a weird kind of way, I I think my grandmother had this integration where it wasn't, you know, there wasn't separation of church and state in her, so to speak. Yeah. But she wasn't saccharine religious. I mean, she wasn't, I mean, she could be goofy. She loved Mom's Mabelie. And if you listen to Mom's Mabelie's jokes, I mean, now they would be nothing. But they were they were borderline, they were on the edge. Cutting they edge. Wouldn't let yeah. us listen to the albums of Mom's Mabelie when we were kids. Of course, when the adults were gone, we listened to them. <laughs> but they, but <laughs> Grandma loved those things. And she would go out, sneak out in the back and smoke her cigarette. You know, I mean, so there was all these. Just real human things 
And yet God is in that mixed. I mean, that's that's incarnation. That's integrate. I don't that's just God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I got a feeling that list is part of that. There's there's yes. God in that mix. But there's just pure human joy and entertainment. And there's, you know, I mean, the Frank Sinatra thing is is funny because my father loves Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, Dinah Washington. There were a whole bunch of them that he loved. And, you know, when you're a kid, you really don't want to hear your parents' music. And in 1967, Daddy got a new car. This was after Mommy had died, and he got he decided, I'm going out and get me a car. And he got a 1967 Chevrolet Caprice, and it had air conditioning in it. Oh, my God. It had air conditioning. And we drove from Buffalo to Birmingham in air conditioning, and it had an eight-track tape in it. And one of the eight tracks, he listened to half the, almost all the way was Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. He loved that song. I did it my way. That's life. Fly me to the moon. I mean, I can hear those songs. And yet there's a part of me, they've, they've actually, they're in. They they're in. <laughs> they're in here. Yeah, they're in here. And so that's, I just love, I love some of those old Sinatra songs now. And uh, there are two young guys on YouTube. They're two black kids. They're twins. and they listen to music that they haven't heard before. Oh my God. I'm obsessed with them. Yeah. Aren't they incredible? Oh my God. They listen to like, I watched them watch Bohemian Rhapsody from Queen for the first time. Yes. The oh first time God. they ever heard it. Yeah. It's like a religious experience. It's amazing <laughs> to watch the two of them. I mean, I love these kids. They just, and they, they, you can tell they're, they're, they, they, they're not just enjoying it. They're experiencing something. So pure. It's so pure. It's incredible. I don't know what their names are, but I, but I once in a while go and see what do they listen to now. And it's, but that that playlist, no one's ever asked me that before. When 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 Nancy sent me that, I said she wants to know what. And so I said, yeah, well, it, it music is a thin place, right? You know, it is. I can I have um I'm I'm not flying on airplanes now, so I'm not writing sermons on airplanes. But there are times there's some music. And I don't know. I mean, well, I, mean, I haven't tried to figure out. There's some music that I can write sermons to, and I don't know completely why. But like, I've got the soundtrack of the Ten Commandments. Mm. Now, part of that, I remember as a kid watching the Ten Commandments. It used to come on like around Easter Sunday or the Easter. Week. Yeah, it was Easter, I guess. And Grandma used to love to watch it. It would be on ABC, I think. Um, I used to sit down and watch it. My sister and I would watch it with her and all that. So it may hark back to that, but there's something about that. There's a romantic, a 1950s romantic in me that in those movies that were made in that era, I mean, they're kind of hokey now. And some, they're a little bit hokey when you look at them now. But there's something about the music that says, you know something? Everything you see in this world ain't the whole world. There's more to mm. it than what your eye can see. Mm. And there is a God. <laughs> there mm. is a God. And, you know, and I think that I have no idea. All I know is, Brene, I have written more sermons on planes with my earphones on, listening to stuff like that. I mean, not just that, but stuff like that. As long as it doesn't have too much singing. If there's singing, right. that interferes. Yeah. But the music. The uh, sweeping music, I, the sweepingness of it. Yes. And I get yeah. lost and swept up in it. I mean, I actually. Yeah. And I have literally flown for hours and not even paid attention until a flight attendant comes or something. I've flown through turbulence, don't even think about it. And and it's 
you're right. Music is a thin, I hadn't thought about that. It's a really thin place for me. And that's why I'm so glad you shared this with us. And let me tell you that this was one of the greatest 90 minutes of my life talking to you. I, I'm grateful for you. I love your book. Um, this was, this was so important for me personally. So I'm really thankful for you spending this time with us and with the Unlocking Us community. Thank you. Well, thank you. You have no idea. This was just extraordinary to talk with you. You have a way. We were just sitting in your family den <laughs> talking. Well, it feels like it. Maybe that's, that's what we wonderful. need right now. Yeah. All we're missing is the food, which your wife, <laughs> which your wife won't, won't hold to. Oh, uh, no. I'm having salads for lunch. Oh, I've lost weight, which is also good. But uh, I'm going to get some fried chicken at some point. <laughs> We won't tell anyone. All right. Thank you, Bishop Curry. Thank you, Renee. God bless you. God bless you. I don't know about y'all, but for me, just hope, love, fresh air. Again, like going to church, singing hymns from Roberta Flack, Frank Sinatra, Curtis Mayfield, Aretha Franklin, um, a hymn. Old Town Road would did not see that coming, y'all. Um, check out his book, Love is the Way, Holding On to Hope in Troubling Times. And if you want a daily dose of love, you can find Bishop Curry on Twitter. He's at, at PB underscore Curry on Instagram, again, at PB underscore Curry. And on Facebook at P-B-M-B-C-U-R-R-Y. You can find all these links on our episode pages on BreneBrown.com. It's much easier, I think. It has been a big week. Um, We announced our partnership with Spotify. You can continue to listen to Unlocking Us for free. And there's going to be so much music, including these mini mixtapes for all of our guests, which are really fun. You can link to the mixtapes again from BreneBrown.com where you can listen to the episode and link to the music. We also announced that I'm launching a second podcast, Dare to Lead, coming October 19th. Um, I cannot wait for this podcast. Um, We're just going to, between Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead, we're going to cover living, loving, leading, and parenting. We're going to wrap this up, y'all. And Dare to Lead is going to be real and actionable, things that we can do that are tactical and practical. And just in case you missed it, I had a great conversation with Jada Pinkett Smith, Willow, and Gammy on the season premiere of Red Table Talk. Three generations, one table, and let me tell you for sure, no filter. You might want to check out that too. I'll put a link on this uh, episode page. Thank you, friends. Um, Look for the love. Stay awkward, brave, and kind. And don't give up on people. We're all we have, y'all. And thank you last to the team that puts this together. This is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Max Cutler, Kristen Acevedo, and Carly Madden, and by Cadence 13. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo. Y'all take care of each other. <laughs>